happy spring, happy Train Like a Mother Club exclusive podcast. Mm-hmm. We are here today to talk about the mental side of running, which is, gosh, what, a thousand times at least harder than the physical, would you say, Sarah? I would say, yes. Yes, because it is. Um, it is can be a monkey on your back or it can be the the wind at your back. It depends on <laughs> depends on how things are going that <laughs> <Yeah>. day. <laughs> yes, I love it. We, we, we want you to have the wind at your back yes. at all times. Yeah. Oh my gosh, doesn't that always feel good? Uh, when when you like are running with the wind at your back on a slight downhill, you just feel like you are just invincible, right? Superwoman, yeah. Oh, makes all those other uphill into the wind miles worth it, right? Almost. Um, anyway, so to have the wind at your back on race day, we have called in an amazing expert. His name is Justin Ross. He is a clinical psychologist and expert in sports and performance psychology. He's a doctor. He's Dr. Justin Ross, or as a friend of mine calls him, Dr. J. Rowe. So you can call him that if you'd like. Um, he owns Mind Body Health, a private practice in Denver, where he works with athletes of all calibers. Athletically, he has done four marathons, a number of halves, um, and some other races, 10 milers, 10 Ks, you know, the gamut. Last season, he was in the Ironman Foundation Newton Running Triathlon team. And he finished the Boulder 70.3 half Ironman with a time of 515, which if you don't know half Ironman distances or times, um, that's blazing. Yeah, that's not too shabby. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. yep. That's not too shabby. No, mm-hmm. that's probably what, like a, probably a 135 half marathon at the end of, you know, um, a long one, bike. Yeah, and a 1.2 mile swim. Yeah, all one <laughs> after the other. Yeah. Um, and right now, his as we'll hear, he is um, training to qualify for Boston. So welcome, Dr. Justin Ross. We're so thrilled that you could join us this morning and impart your wisdom on mental toughness and the sports psychology side of running. So before we before we dive into all the questions from the Train Like a Mother Club challengers, I wanted to ask you, first of all, tell me about your family. You're a father runner, right? Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, and first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, and yes, I, I am a father runner. So I have two kids. I have a, a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter, soon to be two. Aha, so you're like in the thick of no kindergarten yet, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'm in the thick of still alternating uh, bob jogs with uh, free runs on my own. Oh, okay, good. Can you, do, do you have a double? Do you push them both, or do you just push the younger one? No, no double, just uh, just a single, and, and sometimes the older one wants to go. So that's definitely a workout pushing at a forty-pound four-year-old around. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and then um, switching to your professional side of things, what kind of athletes do you typically work with at your Denver office? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So typically, the athletes that that come to see me are in the endurance side of things. Um, so a lot of runners and a lot, a lot of triathletes. And I work with people of, of all calibers, so I see a fair amount of elites and pros who are really gunning for um, you know podium finishes and, and rely on their performance to pay their mortgages and to uh, to sustain their lifestyle. And then I work with a lot of uh, you know sort of everyday folks, weekend warrior types who just compete and, and train because they love to. And uh, and those athletes are, are really fun to work with because um, you know they're just looking to improve their performance just as much as the pros are. Yeah. Well, we're firmly in the latter camp today. <laughs> oh, speak for, <laughs> speak for yourself, Dimity. You know, that, how do you think my mortgage gets paid? <laughs> I mean, we may have some, you know, some listeners who are maybe gunning for an age group. You know, it's always nice to win, you know, a certificate to a running store or something like that, $50 to spend on a new pair of shoes or something. But um, but for the most part, yeah, we've definitely got women who are just trying to get the best out of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll just dive in with our first question. We're going to kind of go from um, more general stuff up to kind of race strategy, just as you, as a listener, just so you have an idea of the, the format of the show. So we're going to start with um, a question from Jen, who is in our 5K run walk challenge. And she is asking, why is it that I use excuses to avoid running? I mean, I know that it's good for me and I know that it feels good to run most of the time. It really does. And I know that, it, it, and I know that I will feel better after a run. So even though I know all these things, I still make excuses and avoid the run. Why is that? 
That is such a such a great question from from Jen about sort of the, the mental barriers to training and to going out and running. And I think it's really common for all of us to hit that hurdle at at some point along the way. I think one one of the first things that I'll talk about just in in general before I address the the question here is that awareness is really a, a big part of of my job in helping runners again of all calibers and one of my favorite sayings is that we you know we cannot change what we're not aware of and so to to improve or to work on the mental game it really does start with focusing on awareness and so usually what i would do with a question like this is i think it, it comes back to jen a little bit to ask um you know or for have her to be self-reflective to think about the specific things that are occurring for her when she hits that barrier. You know, she said that she knows she feels good to run, but she makes excuses. I think the first question is always, okay, what are the specific excuses that are being made mentally? What goes through your mind as you come up with these excuses? So identifying those barriers at first are, are critical. And then from there, it really becomes looking at some of the, uh, some of the behaviors that go along with the thoughts, right? Thoughts come first and then behaviors often follow. So there's typically a reward for not running. Something happens, something is reinforced by not going for a run. But there's also something that's reinforced when you do go for a run. And so I think for her and for all of us, it's about really understanding what some of those factors are individually so that she can find a way to work through that. That being said, I think there are some things to really uh, address here. So uh, another one of my favorite quotes, I'm going to drop a a couple of quotes today, is um, Yogi Berra, right? The the late, great New York Yankee baseball player has this magnificent quote that he said, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical, (laughs) right? Which is this really great kind of nuanced quote. And I think if if you replace baseball with running, that's a big part of it. Running is a very mental sport. And that goes all the way from the basics of training and lacing up your shoes every day to being at mile 20 of a marathon. There's, there's mindset training that's required along uh, every piece of the path. So a couple of things to think about would be really understanding the habits that go into running and training. There's a, this idea, it's called initiation energy. And with that, uh, I think about it as the rule of 20 seconds, meaning if we find something that, that we want to do, we need to make it easy to engage in. And so often if getting ready to go for a run is difficult, right, you know, we have to put on our shoes, we have to drag out our clothes, we have to find our sunglasses, we have to get our garments loaded, there are all these little things that go into it, we can really make excuses to not go and do that. And it's as simple as tying our shoes, but we can make it seem monumental to get the task started. So one of the things to make it easy is uh, finding all those little things to get you out the door the easiest way possible. So uh, one of the things my coach talks about is that she sleeps in her running clothes so that in the morning she wakes up, her alarm goes off. That is eliminated. She does not have to worry about putting her clothes on. That, That decision has already been made. Um, if you get your shoes close to the door and you, you don't have to go look for them, if you have all your materials prepared, it makes it a lot easier to overcome some of the mental energy that we can throw in there that gets in the way of going out and running. All right. Wait, so let me um, stop you for one second and back yeah, up because sure. you said a lot of interesting things and I want to <laughs> make sure we can unpack them a little bit. So the first thing um, I want to say is you said that, that there's a reward for not running. What mm-hmm. What would that be? Like, is that like that maybe like time a, with your kids if you're feeling guilty or sleeping because the in. biggest thing just, um, you know, just as you well know, you're a busy professional who also is a runner, like, and a father, you know, like mm-hmm. time, it's always, you know, that's what we hear 90% of the time. I don't have enough time. Right. So, so first of all, talk about the rewards of not running. And then let's just yeah. talk specifically about the time thing. You know, I like that rule Absolutely. of 20 seconds, but that's that's just putting your gear on. That's all. That's not talking your partner into it. That's not dealing with a boss that would rather have you at the keyboard. You know. So. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I think there could be a lot of factors that play into that. And again, it's about understanding what that is specifically for each individual. So a, a lot of times, you're right. The, the family piece, the kid piece, can be a huge reinforcement for not running. Right. Often to dedicate time to running, we take something away. We're investing time in running, which means we're not investing time in something else, whether that's sleep in the morning or time with our family during the day 
or time to work on a project at home. And so it's investment energy. And often uh, one of the biggest things that happens, especially for parents and especially for mothers, is I think, uh, and fathers too, is we can feel like we're not doing good enough in all areas of our lives, right? We don't feel like we're investing enough time or quality time with our kids, with our families. We, we don't feel like we're investing enough time in managing uh, our workloads or our careers or, or taking care of things around the house or in projects. And so that can be something that really preys on our desire to go out and do things. For a lot of people, running is this, this great privilege. It's not something that we need to do to survive. It's something that we get to do because we enjoy it and because it helps our identities, it helps us feel good about who we are. And so there can be a bit of guilt that goes into that when we're going out for a run on, a, say, a Saturday afternoon and our kids and our families are at home hanging out, playing, having a good time. Okay, so, so what reward do you get for not running? Yeah, that's a good question. One, the, the reward that I would get for not running would be um, getting to spend time with my family. Right? I usually do my runs during the day when my kids are getting ready for a nap or eating lunch. That's the time where I sneak out to go for a run. So by not running, I'm investing time in, in my family. For other people, it could be something else. It could be their one chance to have downtime during the week or during the weekend where they get to engage in reading a book or flipping through a magazine, watching TV, talking to a friend. There could be all of these other factors that, that go, go into it. Um, for other people, it, it could just be a, a mental piece, right? There can be a lot of fear involved with running as well. People can get caught up in, uh, in the fear of not being good enough or the fear of chasing down big goals. And one of the easiest ways to avoid that fear is to sort of self-sabotage by not engaging. You know, you, you're not going to finish a race or you're not going to hit a goal if you don't put in the time for training. And it's a whole lot easier to say, yeah, of course I didn't hit my goal because I didn't train enough, because I didn't go for runs, than it is to say, yeah, I, I worked really hard and I went out and I hit all of my goals in terms of training um, and I still fell short. So there could be that factor that's involved as well. Yeah, wow. And and so you you talked um, a little bit about making lifestyle changes like implementing the 22nd rule, things like that. I mean, how long does it take for these practices to stick? I mean, it's not like I can say, oh, yeah, that Justin Ross, he made a lot of sense. Tomorrow, I'm going to implement everything he said <laughs> on that podcast. <laughs> so what's, right. what's, what's a realistic time frame for someone like Jen to be able to turn around her, you know, um, avoidance of running, let's say? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I, I think about that in terms of sort of the New Year's resolution piece, right? I, uh, a lot of people make New Year's resolutions, and they're always made with great intent. And anybody that I work with that's making a New Year's resolution, I say, all right, let's talk about your New Year's resolution on Valentine's Day. Let's see how it's doing then. All the research really shows that to make these lifestyle changes, it takes at least three weeks, three weeks of consistency of going through the motions of staying on top of the deliberate action before it starts to click over and become the default mode. And I would even advocate longer than that. You know, I would say between three and six weeks, that six week mark really starts to be that point where these changes become automatic and they do become lifestyle. They don't become ideas about lifestyle. They become things that we're actually engaging in and carrying out in our lives. Okay, but so before we move on, I like I like that three to six weeks. Before we move on, is there just any little tips that you give your people who um, or your clients who who have excuses? They just pile up again and again. I mean, I know you 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 really talked about digging deep and really giving it some 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 thoughtful um, contemplation. Is thoughtful thought <laughs> contemplation? Some thoughtful, thoughtful thought. thought. Yes. Um, <laughs> But I mean, uh -huh. like, you know, I'm coming, you know, Jen is sitting across from you and she says, okay, but I need concrete tips. Like, how yep. am I going to get out the door? What would you say to her? So, yeah, the, I would really talk with her about understanding the connection between the mind and then the behavior. The, the mind is the limiting factor for all of us in most, in most endeavors. And that goes from performance. If we have a performance goal, we will often in our mind first set the limit of saying, oh, I, I can't do that, or that's impossible. Anytime we, we do that, one of the first things I tell the people sitting in my office is, yeah, you're absolutely right. Until you change that thought, there is no possible way that you can create a structure to achieve that goal. 
So the, again, the first piece is always awareness about the mind. What goes through your mind? What are the limiting factors that get in the way of you achieving your goals? What are the mental barriers? And then second to that, then it becomes creating a behavioral structure, a behavioral schedule to reach those goals, right? So for me personally right now, I'm, I'm chasing a, a Boston qualifying time. And that means I have to follow a schedule, uh, a training schedule that my coaches set up in order to be prepared for that. And so that's how my life is structured. I, I work around making sure that I can hit those times and, and hit those trainings in order to be successful. I think for, for somebody like Jen, who's really talking about just making sure she can get out the door, it's building in the support around her to make sure that that's possible. So yes, it's about the little things like, okay, make sure your clothes are ready, make sure your shoes are ready, make sure there's nothing small getting in the way of getting out the door, but then make sure you have support. Make sure that you're talking with your partner or your support system about the time you need to run and about what you need from them in order to get out the door, whether that's uh, helping out with the kids or helping out with the household or being present so that you can afford that time to get away. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I used to do back in the day um, when I lived in New York City and I knew that I had to go to the gym after my work day and I didn't want to go, I knew that I wouldn't want to go as I would go and drop my stuff off there before, mm -hmm. like lock it up in a locker so mm -hmm. that I had to go fetch it, <laughs> which is, I mean, you know, like little tricks like that, I think sometimes just to kind of force you, like, it's almost like, well, I don't have an excuse. I've got to have that stuff or they're going to cut off my lock and they're going <laughs> to take my stuff. Right. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, or having the stuff in your trunk of your car so you can, you know, you can run at lunchtime or after, after work, you know, or right before school pickup or stuff like that, having it accessible. I mean, I think that, that, that's important. Yeah. All um, that's in the, there's so many little things. People who run with, with water, for example, um, fill your water bottle the night before a run so that you're not spending, it sounds silly, but you're not spending the 10 to 15 seconds to fill it in the morning as you're trying to get out the door. Have as much ready and accessible as you can ahead of the time. Totally. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I also think not walking back into the house, like if I've, I don't know, I walk outside and I'm like, oh, I really wish I brought my gloves. I'm like, nope, mm -mm. it's, you know, it's above freezing. My hands will be okay. I'll just pull my shirt down over my hands until I warm up a little. <laughs> right. I feel it really stops the clock and, you know, my momentum when I head back inside for something. So, um, right. so the next question comes from Katie, who says she was never an athlete prior to starting running when she, um, she thinks she was about 31 when she started. She says, I didn't grow up learning how to push my body or be mentally tough. And although she does admit that she logged many, many hours practicing piano, so it might be interesting to know if some, something that dedication to a different type of activity plays into this. But so her question is, for those of us who can talk ourselves out of pretty much anything related to sweating, I'm curious to hear about developing mental toughness as an adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, this is such a great question from Katie. And I think... Um, one of my favorite areas to talk about in sports psychology really is this idea of mental toughness. Um, because the truth is, again, with running, running isn't always pretty or pleasant or comfortable. And if you don't develop mental toughness skills, you're going to run into barriers very, very quickly. Um, and so I, I think this is definitely a skill-based area that is um, important for all of us to, to work on. Um, so the first thing I, I think about in terms of what Katie is saying is that she already has something in her repertoire of mental toughness by having this practice background of practicing piano. She has probably already learned something intuitively about what it's like to sit down for many hours to play pieces and to learn how to go through uh, different progressions in order to be successful. And the truth is playing an instrument isn't that much different than learning how to be tough in a sport. There's a lot of factors that overlap in terms of commitment and discipline and sticking with something when it's difficult. So again, to, to back up, uh, awareness is key here. I think mental toughness needs to first be something that is self-defined by all of us. We need to be able to create our own definition of mental toughness. My own personal definition that I use for myself and that I, I sort of like to lead in with clients is it's this general idea about learning how to persevere. 
And that means regardless of situation, uh, for those who are running and, and running races, you'll know that uh, one of the biggest things that happens is there's a lot of uncontrollable factors that occur on race day. You can hit weather that is just absolutely horrid. It's raining, it's cold, it's snowy. And you're going to have to figure out how to show up regardless of that condition. And that requires mental toughness, how we talk to ourselves, how we appraise what's happening in our minds, and um, understanding some, some key elements for dealing with that. So, so, you know, I, I grew up playing piano, probably not like Katie and I also, but I grew up as an athlete, but I didn't, I didn't get any mental toughness skills, you know, playing high school tennis. I mean, yep. I think, um, I think the difference between playing piano and running, and I mean, I understand the, the, um, the comparison between like, you know, just learning how to do something step by step by step. But playing mm-hmm. piano, for the most part, is not physically uncomfortable. And that's right. where I have such a hard time with running is as soon as, like, you know, lean into the hurt, it's for a good reason. Like, you're supposed to hurt. I'm like, screw right. that. This hurts. I'm backing <laughs> off. Right? I don't uh-huh. forget my time goal. Right? And so that's, I think, you know, like, I think that that's kind of the mental, t- like, what, if I were sitting in your office, what would you, you know, what are some things that you would tell me to do or tell Katie to do? Yeah. So there's, and you're absolutely right. I mean, given any run at some point, it's going to be uncomfortable. And the key to success is determining what happens in that moment. There's this new model that's, that's sort of emerging and it's called the psychobiological model of endurance performance, which is really beefy language that really is just boiled down to two factors. Uh, One, it matters um, how much willingness you have to experience discomfort. And two, that's tied to your motivation for achieving a goal, whatever goal you may have in mind. So it really comes down to in that moment, how willing are you to experience the discomfort? Now, there are specific strategies for that, and I kind of break them down into a couple of core areas. There's The first area would be self-talk strategies. So these are the things that go through our minds. These are the things that we're saying to ourselves about not only the experience in the moment, but about who we are as athletes, about our capabilities in that moment to handle the discomfort. And that sort of ties into the second piece, which is called self-appraisal. So self-appraisal is what you're noticing in your body and then what you're saying about it. And often what happens, the biggest thing that gets us into trouble and the biggest thing that leads to us either slowing down or stopping to walk is that we appraise something in our body as uncomfortable, and then we tell ourselves, we give ourselves a story that we're not able to handle that discomfort, or that we would be better off by slowing down, or better yet, by walking. And the whole idea of mental toughness there is in that moment, being able to self-appraise differently, to self-talk differently, and to be able to find this sort of grit to go towards the discomfort. Um, one of the things that's really important is that you, you have to expect that it's going to be uncomfortable at some point. So one of the things I talk a lot about is that acceptance beats suppression every single time. You have hmm. to go into a race knowing, okay, I know it's going to be uncomfortable and I'm going to trust that I know what to do in that moment in terms of self-talk, in terms of self-appraisal so that I can be successful. I'd like to also say, well, first of all, um, I am going to put everything you just said into the pocket of my Saucony Bullet Capris and carry it with me as I run <laughs> from Hopkinton to Boston because, I mean, that just, that's some powerful stuff you were saying there. And, but when I was listening to Dimity talk, um, I, I, I wrote the mental toughness chapter for Run Like a Mother. And mm-hmm. I remember, and Dimity talked in there, she had a sidebar about it, about how she doesn't have any mental toughness. And then I, you know, I hear her talk and I think, but that she did an Ironman in just an amazing, amazing style and time and effort. And now she's training for uh, an ultra. And this isn't so much a question about Dimity just herself, but I think I think maybe that there are women have mental toughness. They just almost don't recognize it as what it is. And that 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 you know again going back to that self awareness piece 
you know, are there kind of markers of mental toughness that, that you could kind of spell out a little so that women, because I think it's so hard to think, well, I have no mental toughness. How am I supposed to build like a, a, you know, a garden full of it? And it's like, oh, no, 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 you have a lot of the, the seeds and you have a lot of the little sprouts of it, you know, that here's what to look for. Here's how you can make them flourish. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right that all of us, we, there is something inside of us that is mentally tough that maybe we're not recognizing. And, and the reason I go back to what Katie said that she had logged all these hours playing piano, she has some grit in her in order to do that, in order to sit in front of a piano. Sure, it's maybe not physically all that uncomfortable, but it can be mentally uncomfortable and mentally boring. And to be able to sit through that and to grind it out is uh, an aspect of mental, mental toughness. Um, the listeners are, are mothers, right? I think being a parent, how can you not be mentally tough? <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you're just automatically in the mental toughness category. No, I like that. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, think about all the moments that can be so exhausting and so draining as a parent, and that requires mental toughness to grind through it. And I think running is it's a very different type of mental toughness, but the first step is always identifying intuitively what people are already doing. And if you stop for a second and you look internally, people will realize that, wait a second, there, there are things I'm already doing that I can expand upon. The, the best sports psychology for anybody is being able to, one, understand your strengths already as a person, as a parent, and then two, learning how to build off of that, learning how to expand that into the, the art form of running. Well, let me back up, Sarah. Thank you for your kind words. And I, I mean, I, I guess I do have mental toughness, but I don't see it as that. And and now that you kind of frame, because for me, and this is probably like old school and it's gone the way of split shorts and, you know, Frank Shorter running the marathon and all that. It's, it's way in the past, but like for me, mental toughness is like, I hurt, I hurt, I hurt, but I am going to keep pushing until I see that finish line. Right. And so like in my Ironman, I had an awesome training cycle. So I had a race that, you know, reflected that, right? And, but in the marathon portion, when my back cramped up or when I was like, oh my gosh, that's a hill that I don't want to climb, I walked. I didn't, right. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't say I'm going to lean in, I'm going to push, I'm going to push, I want to see if I can go sub whatever I wanted to go. I just, I let my, in my mind, and granted, I know I was in an Ironman, so that puts me at a, you know, at a level of mental toughness that's higher than, say, you know, an everyday occurrence, but in my mind, I let myself off the hook, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was ready for that day, but I wasn't mm -hmm. ready to lean in. And so, I mean, so, so talk a little bit about like, you know, you were talking about um, praising yourself and experiencing discomfort. And so I feel that, and I know rationally that I should keep, that I can keep going, that I am physically capable of keeping going. How do I talk myself into that? Like, do I, yeah, is it a so mantra? It, is it a, you know, is it, it a be. song? Is it whatever? So, yeah. And well, first of all, congrats on, on an Ironman finish. That is a beast of an event that requires so much dedication and training. And, and it really does require suffering on race day in, in order to, to get through it. One of the things you had said there is so important, right? The, the first self-appraisal piece is I hurt, I hurt, I hurt. And the, the more you go internal, the more you focus internally on the discomfort the more your mind is going to want to slow down and the more you are going to slow down. That being said, you then added to it, but I'm going to keep going. Yes, I'm going to allow myself to walk, but I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep moving forward. And so that's the piece I think that that shows the strengths of saying I have a goal of finishing and if I'm going to finish, I need to keep moving. There, there's nothing wrong with walking at all if that's what your body is telling you to do. It's in those moments really learning kind of the critical point of delicate balance in your mind. If you're telling yourself over and over again, I hurt, I hurt, I hurt, you're going to slow down no matter what. So one of the things you could focus on there is really changing the language in your mind of saying, okay, I'm noticing that I'm uncomfortable, but I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep going. And what you can do is you can set little strategies along the way of either finding a focal point out in the field so you can look at another athlete ahead of you and you say, okay, I'm just going to 
get to that person and then I'm going to reappraise my situation. Or you could get to, say, a stop sign or a tree. You identify it down the road. I'm going to get there and then I'm going to reappraise the situation. So it becomes this constant back and forth. And, and there's a lot of research that shows that that's important, this shifting from an internal focus to an external focus and having that be a balance along the way. You brought up mantras. Mantras are huge, and mantras are really important for people. And these are also something that need to be very specific for the individual. Mantras are simple phrases that can be repeated in your mind as you're competing, as you're training. And so the question then, again, for all athletes is, what would be a mantra that makes sense for you, that helps you stay motivated, that helps you continue moving one foot in front of the other till the next self-appraisal goal? So what's, do you have a current mantra, Justin? You know, um, I do. And, and the thing I come back to is, is form. So one of the oh. things that form, yeah, one of the things that happens, I think, for me and for a lot of people is as I get tired um, on longer runs or harder days, the, my form starts to slip. And as form starts to slip, you get more tired and you lose efficiency. So the mantra that I come back to when I'm getting tired is just simply – form. And that helps me work on relaxing my body, sort of dropping my shoulders, making sure that my form is good. And that helps me kind of propel forward. So for me, it's just, it's a simple word form, but for me, it's, it's connected to something that's very important. Sure. Sarah, do you have a, a new one for Boston? Or are you pulling out a tried and true? You know, it's, um, uh, it's, I'm looking out our window down here in the studio basement, basement studio. And and I was like, okay, let your mind wander. What, is, what am I going to need on Boston? And my phrase from my Boston qualifying time comes back to me is courage without fear. And mm. part, part of what I've found I like, um, mantras that work well for me, um, if they are multi-word, that then when I'm tired in the race, I can even just drop it down to one word. Because, mm -hmm. you know, so that for that one, um, I dropped the without fear. So that, you know, rather than dropping courage without, um, so that, so that it just becomes courage, courage, courage. And so, and that, um, that I also, I've talked about this before, but that I do, um, third person positive talk so that Sarah is strong, Sarah is strong. And that then I drop that down to just strong. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, good. yeah. And Dim, well, what are you tapping into for your, ultra? well, so, I mean, so, um, we've been working a little bit in the train, like a mother club. Um, I've been doing these Modigo messages, which unfortunately are only available on iPhones. So if you're listening and you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's an iPhone thing and they're getting their Android version together soon. They promise us. But, um, but I was talking about a last mile mantra, um, mm. to, to have something cause you know, they've been training, anywhere from 10 to 20 weeks. Um, and it's been a long road, right? It's a long road. And so you have one mile left to get out of, you know, to finally like bookend the experience and get out exactly what you wanted from that race, right? Mm. Whether it went exactly how you wanted it to, or it just completely tanked and you did not have your best day. You know, you have one mile, what are you going to say to yourself to get, whether it's enjoy or just joy, um, or strength or courage or whatever it is. But so I've been thinking about it for me and um, it's breathe. It's breathe and mm. breathe and take it in. And especially because I'm going to go do an ultra and that's a lot about the surroundings and as much as it is about the race and going to do it in Northern Minnesota, it's going to be awesome. And, you know, so just breathe, breathe it because, and then and that's kind of like form, right. And that, you right. get more oxygen to your muscles and all of a sudden you have this second wind that you didn't expect to have. Right, right. And if you look, I mean, I think what, what's so great about mantras and, and if you look at what we each just said, it really is about the experience on some level. So for me, it's, it's a, a physiological piece that I connect to, form. And, and same with uh, breathe, right? That's the physiological experience. But Sarah, what you're talking about is the emotional experience, right? Mm -hmm. Courage without fear. It's this, this approach to how you want to be in that moment. And if you, you can make the mantra about something like that, how you want to be in that moment, given the difficulty, you're going to find strength that you didn't even know existed. And you're going to be able to get through really difficult moments. Hmm. 
I'm, I'm getting all teary listening to this. I have to say that. I know. I am too. I'm like, oh, I wish I was racing right now. I wish race was next weekend. <laughs> I know. I know. So she could all those long runs in between now and then. Okay. Um, um, hold on. Hold okay. on. I, I get to ask a question. I get to ask a question. Yeah. I'm I, sorry. I thought it was your turn. You, you um, could ask Kim's. Um, I was thinking I'd skip over to Holly since it's about racing and um, that, that – um, uh, and maybe come back to Kim's when we get sore through the race experience. But so that Holly is in the uh, marathon train like a mother club, and um, she's and she's a first time marathoner, and so she wants to know the top do's and don'ts to keep in mind for race day. And given that there's people yeah. f- from five kers all the way up to marathoners like Holly listening, I'd love if you could um, expand on this to all race distances, doing it for the first time, please. Sure, a- absolutely, and. Well, for, first of all, you know, to Holly, congratulations on working on, on a, a marathon distance. That's a, a tremendous accomplishment to to work for that, to train for that, and to be prepared for that. And I think that really goes for anybody tackling any race, whether it's a 5K or a 10-miler for the first time. Uh, um, congratulations on doing that. The, the first thing I always think about is to, one, just take some time to reflect on getting there, getting to race day and appreciating the journey, right? The journey alone, I think, is so worthy of time and attention. And to give yourself a little bit of time and attention to be proud of that. So I think that's always a big first step. But on race day, there are definitely things to consider and certainly things to pay attention to. Um, One of the big ones is, again, acceptance beats suppression, right? So one, you have to expect that you're going to be nervous. And you have to permit yourself the, uh, the allowance to be nervous. That being said, enjoy everything there is about race day, about the expo, and about getting there and being at the starting line. That too, this is a little bit leading up to race day, but uh, you know, trust your taper. Um, the taper can be just this maddening event for a lot of people, right? We work so hard for so long, and then we have two to three weeks where it's really you know toned down that it can create a lot of mental anxiety and a, and a lot of mental stress. So the, the thing about the taper is enjoy it, allow yourself to rest, uh, enjoy leisurely activities that maybe you let go. And remember that during your taper, you're not going to gain any fitness in the last couple of weeks before a race. You have a, a much bigger risk of injury than anything else. So you have to trust the taper. There's a, a great saying a lot of people use that is uh, the hay is in the barn. Right, meaning you put the time in, you've prepared, it's all there. You have to trust that it's going to be there on the race day. Um, the the kind of the fourth tip, which is something that you'll hear about and read a lot about, is nothing new on race day. Um, so make sure that you've practiced all your nutrition throughout your training cycle. You're not adding anything new. Race day is not the time to say, "Hey, I wonder about how these new socks are going to go down." Do <laughs> not do that. You're setting yourself up for disaster. Um, they're Belega socks. The they're Belega socks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. that, was, that, was a, that was a quick word from our sponsor, Belega socks. Everybody got a pair of Belega socks actually at the beginning of the challenge. So at this point, if you haven't tried them, don't try them on race day, but we certainly right. hope you have. And they're certainly amazing. I, I wear them too. I, I love them. They're great. But yeah, don't put them on for the first time on race day. That's a recipe for disaster. Um, and then sort of the last goal, and you'll hear this all the time too, is don't go out too fast. Have a plan. Execute the plan. The last thing you want to do, especially for a marathon distance, is you know start depleting your glycogen stores way too early. Um, you're going to really suffer down the end. And there's a lot of anxiety at first. That's good anxiety. It helps us prepare for action, but that can really propel us to go out too fast and pay the price later. So take it easy out of the gates. Make sure you're working on breathing mindfulness and meditation when you're in the, um, you know, the shoots at the beginning of a race are really important too. That's a great, so let's lead into, Kim has another question, which I think is also, um, I think one of the things that you probably will talk about, hopefully, if not, um, but she, she rec- she's asking what kind of mental preparation do you recommend in the weeks leading up to a marathon? Should I be visualizing mm-hmm. myself finishing strong before I go to sleep? I tried it last mm-hmm. night and kept myself awake worrying about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh-huh. So, so what's your take on visualization and kind of visualizing success? Yeah, uh, visualization is great. You know, visualizing success is really important. Right before bed is probably not the best time to do it. When we visualize ourselves um, in a race or being successful, we're actually tapping into 
both cortisol and adrenaline. This is going to stimulate being awake and being alert, and you're going to stay awake. So really the best time to practice visualization is, is either during the day and or during your run. So a lot, what I, a lot of times what I recommend is when you're out for a run and you're, you want to picture finishing strong, pick an arbitrary point out on your run, especially later in your run, that's you know, down the road that you can see. And I want you to pretend and imagine that that's the finish line of your race. And you feel yourself in that moment and you visualize yourself in that moment being successful at the end of your race. So visualization is important. It's most effective if you're doing it while you're training. When you're not running, you can certainly do it throughout the day, visualizing the important moments of the race, visualizing those sort of critical moments like we talked about earlier where the, the road gets tough or where the experience gets difficult, and then practicing, even visualizing the practice of what you're going to do in that moment. Have a strategy for the self-talk cycle, for the self-appraisal cycle, for the focal cycle where you're focusing your energy. And doing that ahead of time can really lead to great success. I have to say that um, before, as I try to fall asleep at night, I like to have um, something for my mind kind of to chew on, but that isn't too stressful. And um, mm -hmm. certainly my mind is turning toward my upcoming race. And so uh, for a couple nights in a row, I would lay there and debate what I was going to wear. And so mm. race day outfit, because that's like engaging for my, my little pea mind, but not um, too overwhelming. <laughs> so I mean, everything... But you're not running... Yeah. Running past the Wellesley girls. Right, yeah. So, and that, 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 you know, everything from, oh, which color sock any guides should I wear? You know, that, that, uh, you know, or, you know, which, which of, I have two new, you know, Saucony Freedom caps, you know, which one should I wear? Which will go best with it? And so, um, so that's my little tip of, you know, something race related to think about <laughs> as you go to sleep, but not as stressful as visualizing success or finishing strong. Um, right. so, um, I want to jump down to the question from Monica who wonders about pace strategies and, mm -hmm. um, cause you were kind of, um, talking a little bit about that. So Monica has a goal time in mind. She's doing, she's with the marathon train, like a mother club. Um, she's wondering, yeah. but I think this applies to other distances as well. Um, she wants to know, should she write out yeah. her splits on her arm to look badass? or to hope for a negative split, which she says she's joking about, but I don't think she needs to joke about it because I think she can do it. Um, or go out slow, speed up later, like, um, you, all, you know, kind of already talked about that, but if you could talk a little bit, bit more about some other pacing strategies, perhaps. Not letting, yeah. and, and especially not letting the momentum get the most of you, because mm -hmm. I just think I have, I mean, I, after being a runner for 20 plus years, I still have the problem, especially coming off a taper, you're in a big race, the music's playing, you're surrounded by a ton of people, and it is so hard to hold yourself back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think everybody is is amped up in the runner shoots. I, I ran um, Rock and Roll Denver half last year, and I was trying to go uh, sub uh, 90 minutes on, on a half, and I, you know, I had this idea, I'm going to run even splits for the first 10, 11 miles, and then pick it up at the end. And I got caught up in the moment, and I ran a six eleven out of the gate, mm. my first mile, and it. Oh, that happens me. to me all the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Usually, when we run together, though, Dimity, that happens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think that's it. It's like it's again one. It's being aware that we're amped up in the shoots, and anything you can do to work on reducing that energy is going to help you in the end. And so I think to, to sort of back away for a second, I think this is really a plug for meditation and for mindfulness and learning how to do this in your training cycle uh, on a daily basis, even for just a few minutes so that you can learn breathing strategies to calm that sympathetic nervous system response down that you can then use in, uh, you know, in the shoots at the beginning of a race so that everything is right where you want it to be. So then when it comes to, to pacing strategies, it, I, I really think about this as being an area of, of finesse. And working with a running coach who really knows you well is always my, my best advice. They're going to be the ones who can understand how your training has went and what you're really capable of and help you create a really nice race day plan. That being said, I do think there are some, you know, some kind of general ideas that we can all follow. So the first thing is, you know, you, if you have a time goal in mind, you have to really make sure that it's realistic, um, that you have the training that you have the, the numbers that can make that time goal 
um, a reality for you. Um, one of the things that I see a lot of people getting crushed by is they set lofty goals. Lofty goals are great, but if you're not quite ready to get there, you're going to emotionally pay the price for that um, by the end of the race. So first of all, just make sure that those time goals are realistic for you. Um, and then I, I think about really trying to go out evenly to try to keep your splits as close to even as you can through the beginning portion of the race and maybe even have your first mile or two be uh, more heart rate based where you're not trying to blow up your heart rate knowing that you can catch up later. If you haven't gone out too fast and you haven't depleted your glycogen stores by the end of the race, that's where you really focus on saying the last two to three miles I'm going to really work on turning it over and trying to hammer home to the finish. So it's always best if you can save the hammering for the end rather than at the beginning. You're going to want to finish strong. That's another yeah, one they, of my um, <laughs> Finish strong. Yeah. <laughs> finish strong. Find your strong. I mean, yeah, and one of the, another coach that we work with a lot um, here at Train Like a Mother Club, Christine Hinton, talks about dividing the race into thirds, which yep. I think is just a nice way, you know, because that works for anything from a 5K up to a marathon. And mm-hmm. that first third is all about just completely keeping yourself rejuvenated and fueling right and having good form and not going too fast. The second third is about maybe pushing yourself just a tiny bit, but still really care, you know, focusing on self-care and being smart. And then, you know, the final third, obviously in a marathon is quite long. So maybe it's that you divide that into three thirds, but you know what I'm saying? Like, and then that's when you can kind of, you know, push down on the gas pedal a little bit and see where, see what you have. But if you kind of, give yourself some mileage markers to say, okay, up to mile six, like I am not yep. going any faster than a nine thirty or whatever it happens to be. Right. Absolutely. I think one of, one of my favorite sayings with the marathon is, uh, just remember a marathon is just a, a 10 K with a 20 mile warm up. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds ridiculous, but I think it's true. If you keep the first 20 miles, very even and very steady, and then you allow yourself to sort of race that 10 K then you're going to be in a position where you can run negative splits and you can really not only reach your goals, but maybe even possibly exceed them. We like that. Great. We like that magical thinking. That's good. Okay. <laughs> so we got to We got to do one more question with you, Justin, because yeah. you're so awesome. Um, and this is, um, we're, let's talk post race because this has come yep. up. Uh, um, Kim has asked this on the 13.1 page. She's in that half marathon challenge. And um, a lot of people chimed in. And so she is wondering what to do post-race. She says, I am a type A personality and respond well to schedules. So when a race is over and my training schedule ends, I tend to flail a little until I start training again. Any tips for calming those crazies? Yeah, yeah. And and Kim, that's another great question and one that I think as runners we're all very prone to. I I think the first thing that comes to my mind there is that as, as runners, we tend to be a goal-oriented bunch of people where we, we do tend to be type A. Um, one of the things that happens is there can be a huge letdown after a big event that for some people can even uh, call it pseudo-depression. It can really have that feel of lethargy and amotivation and sadness that coincides with a big event being done. That What I remind a lot of people that um, depression in any form, even like this, it's always attached to some type of loss. And when we finish a big accomplishment like a race, there is loss. The loss of the training cycle, the loss of looking forward to the event, and the loss of the event itself. So it's very common for people to experience this post-race letdown. One of the things I I advise people um, to pay attention to is um, to not overcrowd your race schedule. One of the things a lot of people will do is they finish one race, they feel that little bit of a letdown, and they say, oh, I'll just sign up for something else. And pretty soon, they've got 20 races during the the year because they don't like that post-race letdown. So the first thing is to just be very cautious about overcrowding your race schedule in an attempt to fill that void. I think um, reflection is a big piece here, too, for me. I think um, I have this saying with people that reflection leads to knowledge, and knowledge leads to wisdom. So after you've finished a race, reflect on what you just did. Reflect on your training cycle. Look at what worked. Look at what, what didn't work for you. Understand what was challenging, what was easy. Look at where you grew as a person, as an athlete during that training cycle. 
and then look at where you can continue to grow. And from that moment, from that perspective, after some time to reflect, then you start to establish what your next goals are as an athlete. In the meantime, I think post-race, this is really a chance for you to engage in other meaningful things that maybe you didn't get to do when you were in full training mode. So this could be engaging with family, friends that maybe you didn't get to spend time with, to other activities that you wanted to get to or, or projects, um, because those things you know are, are there all along. <clears throat> and then the last thing is, um, you know, the thing I talk about a lot is that one of the most beautiful things about about racing and running is that there are always events. There there are literally thousands of events each and every year that we can tap into. One of the things that I love like the most is being able to say, yeah, I, I understand that these events are not going anywhere and that I'll, I'll be able to continue lifelong fitness and lifelong running and be able to pick events that are meaningful for me as I go through my life. People who do too many events too quickly tend to burn out and, uh, and then that can be uh, you know, a pretty big issue for people. Yeah, yeah, post-race blues, they're real. Wow. They are real. They are real. Struggle. I can lean into those really well, in case you're wondering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at that. <laughs> yeah, mental toughness when it comes to that. But you, you have been really, really insightful oh, and helpful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have written down so many quotes that you've been talking. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. That's perfect. So, um, Justin, I want to say I hope that um, you will join us on our regular Another Mother Runner podcast. I'd love to have you as a guest on there, too. I get to well, be the co-host, though, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I get to soak up this wisdom. Thank Especially you for, for, for having me. I, I love being a part of it, and I'd be happy to, um, you know, to be involved in future podcasts. Great. Not that we put awesome. you on the spot or anything. <laughs> I know. Right? It's like, never again. These I've got, loud, I've got, annoying I've got ladies. Mother deal with those questions. Yeah. Good. Good, good. All right. Thank okay. you so much, Justin. Well, and good luck qualifying for Boston. Yeah. Just remember form, form, form. Form, form, breathing, courage. I got it. <laughs> all right, all right. Take care. Excellent. All right. Take okay, care. bye-bye. Wow, well, Sarah, you like, yeah, you just, you know, you don't even need a suitcase, right? You could just like, or you got to put all that knowledge in your suitcase for your carry-on. Thankfully, Boston, does it, right? thankfully it won't add to the 50-pound weight limit of my luggage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. that was just, that was a wealth, a wealth of great advice. I yes, mean, yes. yeah, that was really what fantastic. What was the one, I mean, I, I didn't write anything down because accept, <laughs> acceptance beats, acceptance oh. beats what? Oh, yeah, acceptance beats suppression every time. Every yeah, time. and I love yeah, running you. isn't always pretty, pleasant, or comfortable. A marathon is just a 10K with a 20-mile warm-up. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Self-appraisal when you notice and what you do about it. Yeah. Uh, sure. learn what yeah. your strengths are and build on that. Oh yeah. It was just, it was, he was just ripping them off like great mile repeats. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks you guys. I hope you have great, we, we hope you have great races, of mm -hmm. course. Yes. And, um, of course we are welcome or happy to answer any questions on the Facebook pages or the Strava pages or, or email if stuff comes up and um, and we'll see you on the next Train Like a Mother Club podcast. Yeah, many happy miles to you. <laughs> <laughs>